Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of opening your word this evening and being allowed the opportunity to study it that we may grow in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that is in your word. We do ask that you would grant us, Lord, the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to better understand, Lord, what we have before us today. And we want to study to be approved, to show ourselves approved unto you. So that it isn't just what we receive from your word, but what we live out in your word. The world may see and know that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we learn, Lord, as we go through this book of Isaiah, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign forever and ever. And these things, Lord, we ask tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So once the identity of the servant was established at the onset of chapter 42 as being the Messiah of Israel, The Lord God himself made it clear that his servant, upheld and chosen by God, would be endued with the Holy Spirit, would bring forth justice to the Gentiles, would not be a rabble-rouser. He would not crush true repentance or quench a small spark of faith. And most importantly, he would not fail nor be discouraged till he has established his righteous kingdom. It was clear in our last study that this is none other than Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, Messiah of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God. And the focus now continues to be on comfort, as we have seen since the beginning of chapter 40, as we began a whole new section there in chapter 40, and and the very first words that we were given there in verses 1 through 3, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so that has to continue to be the focus as we look through chapter 42 as well. But it is through the ministry of the servant that we find as described for us here in chapter 42, being the Messiah of Israel. It is through the ministry of the servant that God will accomplish his great plan of salvation for this world. But as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, 
He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek or the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. So we know then that the servant is going to accomplish his great plan of salvation. But we have to remember that it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we find that the prophecy itself is speaking to the mindset of the Jewish people. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there will be one day a glorious kingdom due to the fact that God, through his servant, will bring justice to the nations. As we saw in verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. So we know that that this is Jesus Christ, that it is speaking of. And what we now find in the next section of this chapter is the Lord God, the Almighty Creator, addressing his servant, the Messiah, and speaking forth what he proposes to accomplish through the one he has called in righteousness. So here is a, a, a conversation, as it were. Here is the Lord God Father speaking to his Son, who is Messiah, who is the servant. And in verse 5, as we've already read, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, and here's the, here's the statement, here's, here's the, uh, the monologue to the servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand. This is God the Father speaking to the servant who is his son. And he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. That phrase there that he was given as a covenant to the people is, is the sure sign that this is Jesus Christ and not Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, and not Israel itself. He is given as the covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles, as we'll see in just a moment. And then the purpose is to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now we ought not to hurry through verse 5, to get to the meat of what God says to his son without seeing the significance of the description that is given there. The one who speaks is God the Lord, as it is put. God, Elohim, the Lord, and this is the Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D. It should be that inscribed in in your Bibles. Which is different from capital L, little O-R-D, for that is the word that usually is, is translated Adonai. But Lord, with all capitals, is the name Yahweh. So the one who speaks is God, the Lord, the one true universal God, the only one who is really God. That's, that's what it's saying. The only true God is speaking. His name, Lord, is followed by a description of his greatness and his majesty. The one who created the heavens and stretched them out, as it says. Who spread out the earth and gave life and breath to the people on the earth. There's a twofold purpose for this description. The description given of God of himself. Or given by God of himself. 
First of all, it shows that the calling of the servant of the Lord as a light to the Gentiles corresponds with the majesty of the one who calls, since he is the creator of all things. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord uh, God the Father made Jesus to be light because he wasn't light before. Jesus has always been light. As a matter of fact, when we go through the scriptures, you realize that God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son, in the triune God, together created the heavens and the earth. When you read the book of Colossians, the, the, the letter that Paul writes to the Colossians, right there in chapter 1, he talks about Jesus as being the one who created all things. And so Jesus is not being stated here as, as, as a creation of God as light, but as, as the, the calling of his son to be that light for the Gentiles comes from the one who is all powerful and one who is all powerful in his creation. The one who created the heavens stressed them out. And so it indicates the greatness of the one also. This is the second thing. It indicates that the greatness of the one sending the servant is the guarantee that his calling will accomplish his goal. So it's important then, verse 5, for God to identify himself as the one who creates and who spreads the earth and, and who gives life because it tells us that if this is God who is doing this, he's going to accomplish everything that he promises. Now, this is important for us to realize because too often people look at God from the standpoint of, 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 of what uh, they apply to him as, as, as being somewhat connected to man, as if man created God. But the fact of the matter is God created all things and he created us. So we have to realize then that when he is speaking of the accomplishing of his plan of salvation, it has to be from the standpoint of his greatness, of his majesty, of his, of his power, and of his sovereignty. And so with that in mind, it is a guarantee that the greatness of the one sending the servant is going to be able to accomplish then that goal. Consider, if you will, a passage in chapter 49. Go over to chapter 49 of Isaiah. In verse 6 it says, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so this is the message given from the Father to the Son that you're the Messiah, that you're going to be the one who will be my salvation to all the earth. Notice, all the earth, not just to the Jews. Paul said to the Jew first. And also to the Gentiles. Go down to verse 8 of that same chapter in Isaiah 49. It says, Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Where have we seen that? In chapter 42. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. And it goes on. But the issue of him being the covenant to the people is as that which would bind Israel to the Lord. So it is given first and foremost to Israel, the message of Messiah or the servant as being the one who is given as the covenant to the people. It is as that which would bind Israel to the Lord. That's what a covenant does. A covenant is a compact. It is, it is an agreement to come together in something. And so the compact or the covenant is a binding 
Do you remember when Abraham was, was commanded of the Lord to, to split to open the, the sacrifices and, and to lay them out? And it was God who went between them. He was establishing the covenant. He was the one who was binding that sacrifice together, as it were, to show Abraham that he was the one that was going to keep the covenant for Israel. So then Jesus being the covenant to the people, in essence, he's the new covenant, you see which is also referred to as a covenant of peace as well as an everlasting covenant. So when we think of that covenant being the new covenant, turn to Isaiah 54 for just a moment. It is called a covenant of peace here. Isaiah 54 verse 10 that says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, notice, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. The covenant that Jesus keeps. Why is he called the Prince of Peace? Because that peace is binding together the work that Jesus Christ has done to its completion. Which is, of course, that when things have been torn apart like that sacrifice that Abraham had. This is what man does to each other. This is why there are wars and, 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 and all. And when there is finally a victor in a war, what happens? What is brought together? It's, it's peace. Now, there, you know, we're not going to talk about the many different ways that people have, have brought about peace. And, you know, that doesn't always necessarily mean that there has been peace in the hearts of people. But when God brings peace, that's when it will be real peace, true peace. Because it comes through the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. But I want you also to notice in, in verse 10 of Isaiah 54 that he talks about the fact that he will not depart. This is a very important part of God's covenant to us. For the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Uh, if you'll go to the next chapter, Isaiah 55, verse 3. This is an everlasting covenant, so it's not just a... It's not a, a, a Conditional covenant, it's an unconditional covenant. Notice, incline your ear, come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And of course, you can tie that into Ezekiel and the promises that are made to Israel in Ezekiel and other, and other prophets' books. But Paul would later make this clear to us. For a better understanding of what this peace is, he makes it clear to us in Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, Paul writes this. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What, what is that separation? between Jews and Gentiles. You see, go, go on and read. It says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. To the far off being the Gentiles, to the near being the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. There's how the covenant affects both the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul makes it clear then what we're seeing here about Jesus as the servant, Messiah, 
being the covenant to the people and the mention of both the Jews and the Gentiles and the whole of all the nations being brought to justice. So in fact, in combining the issues of covenant and light, for as we know that Jesus is also here called the light to the Gentiles, Paul experientially used this passage in Isaiah 42 in his preaching in Antioch. Now, Paul had gone to Antioch and and began to preach in the synagogues, and there were people who were riled up by the things that he was saying. But uh, just to join him at this point in time, in Acts 13, in verse 44 of Acts 13, it tells us on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. There was already a contention from the things that Paul had been preaching. But in verse 45, it says, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, remember the Jews were rejecting the the word about Jesus. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That is a tremendous statement. He says, You have rejected the gospel, and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And notice what he quotes. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And he quotes from Isaiah 42. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And isn't that another wonderful statement that Luke makes in the book of Acts? Those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's what this is all about. Some reject everlasting life. And as Paul put it, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life by rejecting the one who gives everlasting life. But as many as had been appointed to eternal life and they heard the gospel, they believed. You see, this is truly telling us that everything we study in the Bible, everything we study in God's Word, is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternal life and death. And we need to come to grips with our relationship and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. But let me say this, you can't have fellowship with Jesus if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can know a whole lot about Jesus, but that doesn't make you a believer. You need to know Jesus. You need to have communion and fellowship with him, but that comes because you've come to accept the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sin. You've turned and you've accepted Jesus and the truth of Jesus, and you've received him as your Lord and Savior. Remember what John said in his gospel. He said, he says, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. And so you have to believe and trust in everything that God's word says about Jesus. And then when you begin to have that communion and fellowship with the Lord, What a joy that is. Because now you have that assurance of salvation, the assurance of eternal life. Not 
not uh, claimed by anyone that did it for you except for Jesus himself. Because Jesus was the one who went to the cross. Jesus was the one who died for our sins. Jesus was the one who was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. And so you see the importance of eternal life here. And of course we know that Jesus is indeed the light of the world. John 8 verse 12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, that is another distinction of those who follow after Jesus. If we're walking in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, you know, we're not in darkness. So you can believe that there is a Jesus. You can accept the truth about Jesus to a certain level. But if you don't walk in the light of Jesus, then you don't know him. You just know about him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When the prophecy of John uh, was given to, uh, in, in Luke chapter 1 of, uh, of John the Baptist coming onto the scene, this, he, you know, he was still yet to be born, but when the prophecy came in Luke 1 verse 79, Part of that prophecy was pointing to the one that he was going to be prophesying about, the one who he was going to be presenting. And in Luke 179, it says, speaking of the one that he would be looking to, the day star, as it were, it says to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's speaking of Jesus. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So our, our connection to Jesus Christ, our fellowship, our, our communion with Jesus Christ is one that will lead us into the way of peace. We're no longer at war, you see. And see, that war was between us and God. You think for a moment, without having to raise your hand or whatever, but you think for a moment how many times you were at war with God. Even when you were a good religious person. You were at war with God. And even if you weren't a religious person, maybe you didn't even grow up in a religious home or household or whatever. You know, you, you, know, you didn't want to believe in God. Maybe nobody ever told you about it, but somehow, you know, there was just some, something inside. And there will be some people today who will say, well, you know, I was never angry with God. I always believed in God. But I always wanted to do my own thing. You didn't really know God then because, you see, God has his way for us and we're not the ones to be telling God what we're going to do to be justified. So we have to abide in Christ and abide in his word and abide in his truth. So it is important then to mention that verse 7 of Isaiah 42 refers then to the nation's deliverance from Babylon because that was the near fulfillment of prophecy as well as to sinners' deliverance from condemnation, which is, a, which is a very broad fulfillment for anyone who comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It is a reference to that deliverance from condemnation that we ought to be rejoicing about, and that's what we're going to be getting into here very shortly. But in verses 8 and 9, as we go on now in Isaiah 42, Verses 8 and 9, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Now, you know, in chapter 41, we were dealing again with with, uh, idol worship and all and, and the condemnation against that. 
Verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That last, cha- that last verse there, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Let me just tell you very quickly, that is, that is a primer, a very simple uh, yet profound primer to the understanding of, of God's uh, pro- uh, prophetic word. It just tells it like it is. The former things have come to pass. In other words, the former things that I've given, they've all come to pass. New things I declare, and of those new things that are yet to come to pass, before they spring forth, I tell you of them, which says, I know that they're going to come to pass. <laughs> so that's a very simple little primer on, on, on God being, you know, and his prophetic word. So in these verses then, the mission of the servant is given to us in respect to the former things and the new things. The association between prophecies that had been made and events as they unfolded was, to some extent, to provide the captives in Babylon, who would yet to see these prophecies, by the way, because they're you know, being written by, by Isaiah, with significant proof of the Lord's uniqueness and sovereignty in what would be their present experience, especially the rise of Cyrus. So everything that's being written is going to be an encouragement to the present time of those who are going to be eventually in captivity in Babylon. But the work of the servant would open a whole new chapter in God's relationship with his people as well as with the world, in which his glory would be displayed in a new way, surpassing by far anything that had previously happened. And when you look at the whole of the prophecy of Isaiah, that would eventually lead to new heavens and new earth. Take, for example, go to the last two chapters of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So, you know, we, we're, giving, we're, we're being given this, this, this whole understanding of, of, of a new thing happening, of something new that is taking place, even though it has been foretold for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that, of course, again, is the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of Almighty God. Isaiah 66, verse 22 as well. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. So with that in mind, then, about the former things and the new things, when the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. Going back to verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. He is giving the confirmation and he is giving the assurance that the one who has made the glorious promises given from Isaiah 40 on is certainly able to fulfill every prophecy. I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. I said before that the name Lord in caps, capital letters, refers to the Hebrew letters either Y-H-W-H or Y-H-U-H, which is called, in theological terms, it is called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four letters, and and so Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. We've translated the name in many different ways. It's uh, some say Jehovah or Yahweh, Yehovah with a Y, 
or Yeveh and Yah. You know, there are various different ways of pronouncing it that uh, we've all tried to apply to the YHWH, which, by the way, the Jews don't even pronounce. They don't pronounce it out of respect, actually, in reverence to the name of God. Though no true pronunciation is utterly known. They, they, there is no true pronunciation. Anybody really knows what it is. Literally, that name means the existing one. The one who is and always is and always will be, if we can expand on the name of God. The eternal one who always is but we don't have a real name for that. And he says, My glory I will not give to another. This first signifies that no one else can fulfill these promises because God will not share his glory with any other. So no one else can fulfill these promises. This is God. I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I will not give to another. Therefore, I'm the one who's going to accomplish everything I'm the one who's going to get the glory for it. And he can because he is perfect and complete as our God. And we're, we ought to be thankful that he is. There's, there's nothing imperfect about him. There's nothing missing in God. God wasn't created by anyone. He's been before all things, before anything was created. And so he will not share his glory with anyone. Secondly, we need to understand that Jesus will always share in the glory of his Father. Jesus will always share. So this is an important issue here in understanding who Jesus is. If God himself says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am, by the way, is the name. I am. Going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses goes to that bush, when he sees the bush that's, that's burning, but you know, that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he goes in his curiosity to see what it is. And out of that bush, that burning bush, the voice of God speaks to him. Eventually in their conversation, after God has given him the command to go to Egypt and bring the people out, he says, well, who shall I tell him is going to send me? And from that burning bush, the name came. I am that I am. I am. And the importance of that name is in the Gospels as well. When Jesus was confronted by the Jews, who questioned him about who he was. The fact that he mentioned that he knew Abraham. He says, you can't even be 50 years old. How can you know Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they were ready to stone him. But he was recognizing himself in the glory of the Father. When Jesus was going to be arrested, taken out of that dark garden of Gethsemane. And hundreds of men came to arrest a single man who had never carried on him a weapon of any kind. Other than his own words. 
And they asked, are you the one that we came to get? He said, I am. One of the Gospels tells us that all the men fell back because he said, I am. What is that saying about who Jesus is, you see? And so when God says, my glory I will not give to another, we need to understand that Jesus will always share in the glory of his Father. In John 17, verse 5, in that great high priestly prayer of Jesus, he says, and now will Father glorify me together with yourself. With the glory with which, or with the glory which I had with you before the world was. They shared the glory. And this is more evidence that there is a triune God, one God in three persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is, there is countless evidence given in Scripture concerning this, is just one. How can Jesus from eternity past, share the glory with the Father if He is not a part of that one God, unity. So with that in mind, as we look at verse 9, it says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It should be no surprise to us that God is the master of both the past and the future. God is the master of both the past and the future, the former things and the new things. And what is equally significant is that because of this, the Lord, has, the Lord also has the present pretty well in hand, don't you think? If he's the, the master of the, of, the, of, the, of the former things and the new things, if he's the master of the past and of the future, he's got the present covered as well. And that's an important thing for us to know, that, that we live in the present. We live in the present of, of, uh, of our day and of our time, uh, where we are, where we face troubles, trials, situations, where we have triumphs, where we have trials, where we have victories, where we have valleys. <clears throat> we have all of those things in this life, and yet God is in control of them all. We don't have to just look to the back. Oh, God was so good in the past. Oh, He's promised so many things in the future. Well, He's also here in the present. And did He not say, I'm going to be with you? Did He not say, I'm never going to leave you? I'm not going to forsake you? I'm going to be with you to the very end? And so what are we worried about? You know, see, part of the problem with it, with, in the world, and, and maybe we went through this when we were in the world, but, but you know, we'd go back, we'd look into the past. Oh, I wish the things were so, I wish things were like they were before. No, you don't. That's dumb. Then we look to the future. Oh, I wish I could see what's up ahead. It's like, well, just look at where you are now. I guess nobody likes the now in the world, but I, I can say this. As believers, we, we don't have to worry about now because God's been there before and he's, in the, he's already in the, in the future. So he's got to be strong for us in the present. He's not lacking in helping us in our present. The psalmist tells us that... Uh, that God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. Did you notice that he said, ever-present help? He's an ever-present God. He's already been there. He's going to be there when we get there. But he's here now. And he's our strength now. 
He's our source of power now. He's our source of comfort now. He's our source of wisdom now. He's our source of knowledge and understanding now, 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 okay? But it's good to know that he's been there before and he'll be there when we get there. All right, with that in mind. This is especially clear to us in the way that God can declare new things even before they spring forth, which is what we see in verse 9. And I want you to consider the words of, uh, of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21. Because here Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. We have the more sure word of prophecy, as the King James says. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No private interpretation. To say, you know, I think this is what it means. I think this is what I'm going to believe it says. There's no private interpretation because it wasn't man that said it. It wasn't man that brought it about. It was God himself using holy men of God, speaking through them as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when you talk to someone who says, well, you know, I don't, I don't can't believe the Bible. You know, it's not trustworthy because it was written by men. In fact, it was not. It was written by God through men that he anointed with his Holy Spirit to write everything that they might not have understood at the time, especially the prophets, because they would write stuff and they would say, oh, I don't see this happening, but we've got to write it down. But now we see it happening. So that's the sure word of prophecy here. The Lord's prophetic word fulfilled makes it clear to us the confidence we can have in His word. How many hundreds of of, of prophecies were given of Jesus' first coming and every one of them came to pass? And now the, the, the rest of the 300 prophecies that speak of His second coming, all of them are going to come to pass. And so many that are leading up to His second coming have already been fulfilled. And so the Lord is going to reveal new things that will also surely happen. And when God does a new thing, it's time to sing a new song unto the Lord. It is time to sing a new song unto the Lord because we know that the Lord is coming. Because He said He would. It's time to sing a new song. Which means we can sing a lot of old songs and they're still new songs. Because remember what I said the other day, that if God made us a new creature in Christ, we're always new. Therefore, even if we sing a lot of old songs, they're still new songs. And even if we sing new songs, they're new songs, and they can be old songs later, but they're still new songs. Why? Because they're for us to give thanks and glory to God. Oh, you all are looking at me like I'm crazy, but I don't care. Look at verse 10, Isaiah 42. It's not me telling you this. It's the word of God. Sing to the Lord a new song, it says. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. 
Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the mountain to the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. That's, that's again speaking of all of the earth, of every place that is inhabited by man. That is going to happen at some point in time. Everyone's going to be singing unto the Lord because they are going to recognize what Christ has come to do. And the understanding here, this is, very, this is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, when you look at verse 11, and I'm going to do this real quick because I want to go on. But it says, uh, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Kedar is actually in Saudi Arabia. And there is a, there is a translation of a targum of, of, of a Jewish interpretation of this particular verse that says the Arabians will praise God. Interesting. Then it says, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Selah would be in the area of Jordan and more, more specifically in the area called Petra. And Petra is a place that is, has, has some prominence in future Bible prophecy. It is a place where many Jews will go to hide. And what some people believe is that this statement here is actually speaking of a time when those Jews who have gone to hide from the, from the Antichrist and all that is taking place at that time, when Jesus comes for his people, they will be singing praise from Petra when they see him come. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. You see, in Saudi Arabia, there aren't very many mountains. There are a few, but in the Kedar, it's more like the valley. But at Petra, there's mountains. But the mountains... Or let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. So what could be more appropriate then, after the tremendous announcement of the previous passage, than, than a great outburst of praise to God? Because the former things have come to pass. New things will happen and they're going to spring forth just as He tells us. That's something to sing praise to God about. What, what, do you, what do you do when the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ grips you? What do you do when the glory of, of the gospel of Christ takes hold of you? What do you do? Can you even contain yourself? Or, 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 or do you not burst forth with praise and worship and thanksgiving from the depths of your very heart? I, I, I would hope you do. I would hope that you have come in here to praise God with everything that is within you. Because of the great and wondrous things that he's done. And if you just look at the gospel itself, if you just look at the work of Jesus Christ for us, it doesn't matter what else has happened to us. Everything else, man, is like, like, like you know, icing on the cake. The cake, though, is Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Have you not praised God for him for that? Has that not gripped you enough to get you to just pour your heart out with praise? Such... Did the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, actually a few times in Romans, he would just come out and start writing this, this what they call a doxology. That, that's a, the theological term for just bursting forth with praise. And in Romans 11, for example, verses 33 through 36, after writing about Israel in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11, and how God is still concerned with Israel, and how God is going to still bring uh, salvation to Israel, Yet at one point in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That was a psalm of praise. That was a doxology. That was a statement of praise unto his God because he began to receive, you see, from the Holy Spirit the things he was writing in in the book of Romans. And it just gripped him so much. The things that God was doing and was going to do for, for Israel, his own people, that he burst forth in praise while he's writing the greatest theological book in the New Testament. The praise of other things. What is it good for? The praise of other things other than God and Christ. What is that praise good for? The praise of other things, especially idols, is foolish and pathetic compared to the rich and strong praise of the Lord which we have here in this passage. Praise of idols. We have a, an idol-obsessed culture and society. Everybody's trying to find their way to the top and get the praise for whatever talent, little or no, that they might have. American Idol. (laughs) There's other things too. Dancing with the stars. We want to praise them for these things. Man. <laughs> A person can sing their hearts out, then one day they lose their voice. Then where is everybody going? Lost your voice? That person's singing over here. Bye. So much for the idol. Unlike those wretched and dismal idols, God can and will do what he has promised. And so the announcement of new things in verse 9 has led naturally to the new song of verse 10, which, by the way, sounds like these psalms. And there are many more, but Psalm 33, verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Our singing unto the Lord may very well be something that captivates and captures a very heart that needs Christ. Psalm 98, verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained Him the victory. Sing to the Lord a new song. Isaiah calls on the whole world to join him in praising God from the, from the sailors. He says, those who go down to the sea. From the sailors to the desert dwellers in Kedar. From sea creatures and human beings, from islands and from mountains. And why, why shouldn't they, since he is the creator of all and the Lord of all? Why shouldn't the whole earth be praising God? But the song sung here carries with it a higher theme than even this. We move from a singing nation... And a singing world to a silent God. Listen carefully. 
We move to a silent God who breaks his silence to become a shouting conqueror and victor. Look at verse 13 and following. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And notice what he says. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Do you get the feeling that that's what he's been going through during this time that the church can call it actually the day of grace or a time of grace? But when you look at the world, how restrained God is, how silent he kind of seems to be, though he's not really. But he says, I've held my peace a long time. I've been still. I've restrained myself. Now, he says, I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. <coughs> I will lay waste to the, the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make them darkness light before them. Or I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Who trust in carved images. Who say to the molded images, you are our gods. The praise reached its climax, you see, in two dramatically bold pictures of the Lord as the Savior of His people. The first picture is of a warrior who stirs up his zeal like a man of war, verse 13. The second picture is that of a woman in childbirth panting and gasping. We see here that he is totally committed to the welfare of his people, however blind they may be and however dark the circumstances may be. He is totally committed as a warrior and as one who struggles within. We need to remember that redemption, and this is the point here, that redemption is accomplished with tremendous effort and at a great cost. Again, I I point you to Jesus. Again, I point you to the passion of Christ in the sense that that the, the, the things that Jesus suffered for us, the things that Jesus went through for us. What a great cost it was. And it is the glory of the Lord that He did not spare Himself from either the effort or the great cost. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Gave Him. To be taken and beaten and ravaged for us. What a great cost. He did not spare Himself from either the effort or the great cost. Why? Because He will not forsake His people. He will not forsake His people. Deuteronomy 4 verse 30 and 31 says, When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, He's speaking to His own people. When you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. He will not forget the covenant. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord your God. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. From Old Testament to New Testament. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to covet. You don't have to desire what others have. Because I'll be with you. Isn't that a tremendous statement? Nothing is going to get in the way of the Lord's work, you see. No obstacle will prevent him from accomplishing his will. Mountains and hills won't get in his way. Rivers and pools won't stop him. Nothing will prevent his plan from its fulfillment. And when his glory is revealed, those who worship idols will be put to shame. At the present time, God is long-suffering towards sinners. But when he begins his work, which we can call the beginning of the end, he will waste no time. We're very close to that. That is why we should be being encouraged each and every day that we open the Word of God, that we aren't to look at it just from a very casual standpoint. We need to look at it as God's truth that is going to become true to us and true for us and true before us in the, in the days to come. And we can't just kind of you know, play games with God in that, in that sense either. It is very clear that he says, I have waited, I have held my peace a long time. I've been still restraining myself. There'll be a day when he won't. What are we going to do then? He's not going to waste any time. Look at verse 18. Let's go on. I've got to finish here pretty quickly. Hear you deaf, he says. And look, you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant? Now, understand, I'll mention this. He's not talking about the same servant at the beginning of chapter 42. Who is blind but my servant or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things but you do not observe. Opening the ears but he does not hear. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. You see, the law is still important to God. But this is a people robbed and plundered. Look what he says of his own people. This is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers. For plunder and no one says restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned? Now we know that this is Isaiah speaking. For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. Speaking of Israel. It has set Israel on fire all around, yet he did not know. And it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. Things were happening to them, but they weren't taking it to heart. Folks, The servant in these verses is Israel, and this passage is so describing Israel's condition, its current condition, blind to their own sins, deaf to God's voice. You go back all the way to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. 
where God is commissioning Isaiah and he says to him, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. There's something that God was doing to that nation. And what he was encouraging Isaiah to do, yeah, you go tell them, but you know, they're, they're not going to listen. Do things that they're not going to see it. A blind man doesn't make a good servant, you see. A blind man doesn't make a good servant. A deaf person wouldn't make a good messenger. Kind of, think about it. How many people act as if they can see, but they really don't observe anything? How many will stay blind and deaf as long as they can't admit their need? That's been Israel's problem, you see. The only cure to that problem of never confessing, you know, that they have any problems whatsoever. The only cure is to know their own condition and not deceive themselves. And let me put it this way. The only cure is to know our condition and not deceive ourselves. Jesus spoke of this on the occasion of healing a man blind, uh, that blind since birth. In John chapter 9, verse 31. I'm sorry, 39 through 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who, may, that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and he said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. In other words, they were boasting that they had nothing wrong with them. That they could see pretty clear. The Lord says to them, if you were blind and you admitted it, there would be no sin in that. For Israel, that, that, there was much to hear. What a privilege they had enjoyed of receiving the Lord's Torah. The, the, when you think about it, it is the law and the prophets. When they received the law and the prophets, what a, what a privilege it was to receive it from God. And the reason that it came to Israel was simply that it pleased the Lord to give it to them for the sake of His righteousness. To give it to Israel. It just pleased the Lord to give it to them. That which He granted them through His Messiah and the covenant that He established for them. Go back to verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. But they were to groan under the conditions of exile in Babylon. And so they are called to pay attention to this summons and the question and answer in verse 24. Look at verse 24, if you will. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. It is the hand of the Lord that afflicts Israel for their self-will and their disobedience. And would they take it to heart? Will they take it to heart? How sad when the Lord disciplines us and we don't understand what he is doing or we don't even take it to heart. What does, what does bless us? Is his discipline creating in us a desire then to please and to glorify God? It might be a struggle. It may be a tremendous struggle. But when we begin to realize that, that what he is doing to us, you know, when you, when you read there in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, about the way the Lord disciplines his own children, it is because he loves us. And we may not you know, accept it immediately. 
but when we begin to understand it. In other words, when we take it to heart, what a blessing comes because God is doing it for us. Israel will still need to learn this lesson. But we who have God's word as we do, we who have seen the blessings of Christ as we have, we should grow mercifully. We should grow graciously in this particular truth. That what God does to us is because he loves us and because he wants to create in us a desire to please him and to glorify him. And it's all about glorifying God because God will share his glory with no one. If we don't give him all the praise and all the glory for what he's done for us, and we take any of that glory for ourselves, think about it. Some people today, you know, they, uh, they boast that they have got themselves out of, you know, addictions. As if God didn't help them. We can't take that glory. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. All glory to him. All glory to Jesus. Let's pray.